I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Let's go to the book of James, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to look at a few verses this morning. Just keep your Bible open there. And I want to talk to you today about turning trials into triumphs. Turning trials into triumphs. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given. Father, put the full weight of heaven behind your word today. I pray you'd open our ears and open our heart, open our mind to receive from you your word. So, Father, we thank you today for all that we've heard and all that we've sung, the lyric of every song that talked about our freedom and our adoption and that our name is written in heaven. We rejoice in that today. Father, I pray today for victory in this room. I pray you'd save the lost, encourage the weary, heal the sick. Father, I pray today that you'd do a work in this room that would mark us forever. That when we leave this place, we would say one to the other, surely the Lord has met with us today. We pray all this today in the name of Jesus Christ, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen. You can be seated today. From the book of James, turning trials into triumphs. And somebody once said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of what you do with it. That's easier to laugh at that statement than it is to live it. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of what you do about it. What I like about that is I think the principle is biblical. It teaches us the principle that we move from feeling like we're somehow a victim into a mindset that we are victorious. That when you think about that you actually have options, that you're not out of options, you're not out of choices, you're not out of the ability to do something about what's going on in your heart and in your life and the surroundings. You may not be able to control the surroundings. You may not be able to control what goes on around you. You cannot control the world around you, but you can control the one within you. When we think about this idea of moving from trial to victory, I think everybody in the room would understand what it is to be in a trial. We fall into... Various kinds of trials, as the Bible states here. Sometimes it's difficulty. Sometimes there are major problems. Sometimes the problem isn't necessarily a crisis for anybody else, but it is for us. You know, it's kind of like the guy who said it's major, it's minor surgery when it's happening to you, but it's major when it's happening to me. We've all got problems and difficulties, and the Bible even says that we should expect trials to come. That there are just there are just things that are going to happen in this life. Regardless of your faith, regardless of what you believe about God, regardless of your Bible knowledge, regardless of your church attendance, that in this life you're going to find yourself running right into some problems or difficulties or as the scriptures here in James teach us, into trials. And throughout the, throughout the entire Bible, people turn their trials into triumphs. That we're not somehow victims to just kind of sit down and say, well, I, 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 guess, I, I guess this is just kind of the life I've been dealt. You know, the, I've had people say this to me before in a, in a pastoral setting where they say, well, I guess it's just kind of the cards I've been dealt. Well, the problem with that is we're not living in Vegas and God doesn't play cards. Right? So, so th- these things that happen in our lives, these difficulties that come to our lives are sometimes a result of just being human. 
I know that's hard for us to imagine, but sometimes we just experience trials because we're human. Sometimes we experience these trials because we're Christians, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But as James teaches us here that as we experience these trials of life, that no matter what comes, whatever the trial may be on the outside or whatever temptation we may feel on the inside, that through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I can turn every trial into a triumph. Now, I know that sounds almost like that statement of life is 10% of what happens to you and 90%. It almost makes you stop for a moment and pause and ask yourself, can that really be true? Well, if it weren't true, the Bible wouldn't say it to us. If it weren't true, the principle wouldn't be outlined in the Word of God. And if we're going to turn our trials into triumphs, if we're going to move from having a a victim mindset into a, a, a mindset of victory... And turn these trials of this life that are coming to us. If we're going to turn those into triumphs, then there are a few things that we need to get a hold of this morning in this passage that James writes to us. He uses four little words. He uses four words to teach us the principles of how to move ourselves from trial into triumph. The first word, if you're taking notes this morning, is just the simple word count. He, He uses that word... In, in the opening statement when he says, my brothers, and, and he says brethren, but he, he's writing to men and women. He says, listen, children of God, you need to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me and you face a trial, you're like, oh boy, here we go again. Or sometimes we start thinking, what did I do this time, right? We've all been there. Have you ever, have you ever just kind of looked up at God and just said to yourself, hey, do you remember me? Now, in your heart, you know he does. In your heart, you know he's for you. In your heart, you know the word of God. And in your heart, you know the promises of God. But sometimes in our mind and in our heart, when we're in the battle, when we're in the trial, it's easy for us to say, hey, hey, do you remember me? Have you seen me lately? I know you're out there. I know you're busy. But but do you see the trial and the difficulty that I'm going through? But listen, what what James writes to us here is he says, listen, the first thing you need to do if you're going to move from a trial to a triumph, you've got to count. And that's a joyful, that's a joyful mindset. It's a joyful attitude. And you know, joy is a choice. I think sometimes we wait around for something to happen in our life in order to get a little joy. And if you're waiting on that, you're going to live with frustration and anxiety. Joy is a choice. Joy is something that comes to the child of God when we, fall in, when we come into relationship with Jesus and we've, we've, we've been given peace with God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a joy that the Bible describes that is unspeakable and full of glory. As children of God, we ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. I know that sounds like a euphemism in the days in which we live, but let me tell you something. We ought to be able to gather together in a beautiful room like this or in a grass field somewhere under a a hut or around a bunch of rocks like your pastor's been walking through this week in the land of Israel and we ought to be able to call on the name of the Lord because he's been good to us he's been he's brought he's been faithful to us he's brought us through time and time and time again but if you're going to be joyful you're going to have to choose it it's not just going to happen for you joy is a choice and notice what he says he doesn't say Take joy in the trial, like in the trial itself. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody in their right mind says, oh, I thank you for this problem. Nobody in their right mind says that. And usually it's only when we get to the other side of the trial that we look back and say, now I can thank you, Lord. But what he's saying is is while you're in it, 
not for it, but while you're in it, choose an attitude that is a joyful attitude. And he says, just, just, just count when he says, my brethren, count it all joy for various trials. And here's, here's why that's important. Because outlook determines outcome. Now, that's not psychobabble. God made us. All of your psychology, God made. All of your emotions. You know, some of us have to unlearn that, that anger isn't a sin. Now, you can sin in your anger, but anger is an emotion. Fear isn't a sin. I know the Bible says fear not, but you know, there are a whole lot of other passages like David said, when I am afraid, I'll call on the Lord. Fear is not a sin. Fear is an emotion. Now, you could probably fear and, and find yourself uh, drifting toward a sinful attitude in your fear. But fears, fear isn't a sin. They're emotions. And, and part of being healthy as a human is learning how to deal with your emotions. God made us that way. He gave us all of those emotions. And outlook determines your outcome. Your attitude determines your action. If you think you're a failure, then you're going to live like a failure. If your attitude is that you, that you just can't or you're not enough or you're insignificant, that's how you're going to live. Your level of living will never rise above your level of thinking. That's why it's so important that you remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercy, in view of how merciful God is, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your only reasonable response of worship. Then you may be able to prove what is that good and pleasing and perfect and acceptable will of God. And I would say then and only then can you prove it. He says, listen, what you need to do is get an attitude that says, I'm going to come out of this better than I went in. You need to get an attitude that says, you know what, this trial, this difficulty, this sickness, this, this tragedy in our family and in our life, this, this loss, because if you live long enough, you're going to experience all those things of life. But if you'll make up your mind that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, if you'll make up your mind that God is for you and not against you, if you'll make up your mind that you're going to sing these songs, not just because they're on the screen, but because it's a message from God, and get it in your heart and in your life, God will move your mindset from a mindset of victim to victor. You can move from a trial to a triumph. In fact, God, he tells us, God tells us to expect trials. In fact, James here says, don't think it's strange when you fall into various kinds of trials or all kinds of trials that come to our life. Jesus says it in John 16, 33. In this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world for you. Be of good cheer, he says. I've overcome the world for you. In, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it was Paul who told those disciples, those converts at, at, at Iconium and Lystra and, and Antioch, he told them, listen, you, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, some trials come because we're human. Some, I, know, I know sometimes we want to spiritualize everything, but some trials come just because we're living in a world that's fallen and broken. It's called sin. In fact, there's a reason for all the things that we see going on in the world today. There's a reason for it. There's, there's evil in the world. You and I live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And the truth is, the, denom the common denominator in the room this morning is that you and myself, both of us, have done enough of our own personal private sin to add enough frustration and anxiety and problem and difficulty in our life. And that's just true. All of us have sinned. But that's not the sin I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden when sin and death entered in. Good people, faith-filled people, people who know the Word, people who've preached the Word. Good men and women of God get sick and die and tragedies happen. And I know we want to know why, but if I could find the great big book of uh, divine reasons for why and open that book and scroll down and find your name and read the reason, it wouldn't make a difference because it doesn't change the fact that you've been in it or you've experienced it. Some trials come because we're living in a world that has fallen and broken. And I know God is victorious over that. I know God removes those things. I know God is victorious over all of that. But sometimes he lets us go through things. Sometimes things happen in this life simply because we're human. Sickness and accidents and disappointments and tragedies. You know, other trials come because we're Christians. Other trials come because we name the name of Christ. And certainly the devil attacks us. Certainly the enemy of our soul wants to rob us of our faith. Listen, God, listen, the devil isn't interested in your house. He doesn't live in houses. The devil isn't interested in your 401k or any of your other financial portfolio. He doesn't need any money. The devil isn't after your money. The devil isn't after your wife or your husband. He doesn't want them either. Let me tell you something. He's not after your kids. Now, that may sound strange for you to hear me say that to you, but that's really not what the devil's after. What he's after is he's after your faith. He's after your faith in God, so if he can attack your marriage and get to your faith, that's what he wants. If he can attack your family and get to your faith, that's what he wants. Sometimes we face these trials because we're human, but sometimes we face these trials because we name the name of Christ. It's what Peter says when he writes and says, Brothers, don't think it's strange, this fiery trial that you find yourself in, as though some strange thing is happening to you. Now listen, there are trials, and they're not all alike. They're difficulties and they're not all alike. They're variegated. They're, they're multifaceted. They're multicolored. My little grandmother, my great-grandmother, Amber Catherine Mitchell, was the clerk of her little United Methodist Church up above Calfee Park, Trinity United Methodist Church, for 62 years. So beautiful woman who was a seamstress, and she, she'd sew, they'd make stuff for the Lord's Acre sale. Still some of the best lemon meringue pies I've ever eaten. I hadn't had breakfast and I'm hungry. When I did her funeral, first funeral I ever did, it was an easy one. She had lived her life as a woman of God, but I memorized a little poem that made a world of difference for me in that moment. And even in our own loss, even in our family's loss, even in the tragedies of our own life, The experiences that I've walked through in my own life, I've gone back again and again and again to this little poem that I learned for a woman who meant the world to me. It's the little poem called The Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. But not until the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly Will God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hands as the threads of gold and scarlet in the pattern he has planned. I'm telling you today that you can move from a trial to a triumph by changing what you're saying about yourself. By changing what you think about where you are and who you are. 
By changing what you believe and exchanging what you say and what the enemy says and what the the down knowledge is and and get in your heart and mind the word of God that says that you are more, that you are a conqueror, that you are able. Get something in your heart and your mind, a word from the Lord and move you out of the trial into a, a triumph in the name of Jesus. If you believe that today, give the Lord praise with me. And the key word here is count. It's a financial term. It means to evaluate. And, and, and we, only, we only evaluate what we value. We only evaluate what we value. And Paul uses this little word over and over in Philippians chapter 3. There's only little, four little books of that, of that, four little chapters of that little letter in Philippians. But in verse 7, he says, What things were gained to me, I count as lost. You know what that means? Paul, with all of his education, all of his knowledge, all of his experience, all of his notoriety, all of his wealth, all, the, all of his, 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 his bluster, everything that he had. When he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he looked at all of his life. He looked at everything, and he said all of that. And I'm not trying to be crass this morning. These are his words, not mine. He said all of that stuff that I amassed in this life is no more. When I, when I evaluated against just knowing Jesus, all of this other stuff in life, all of the good, all of the bad, is nothing more than a pile of, of fertilizer. It's nothing more than a pile of manure is what he said. Now think about that. What did he do? He evaluated his life, all of the trials and the difficulties and the struggles, the good, the bad, the up, the down, the in and the out. And he said, I'll tell you what, none of it is worth anything, only knowing Jesus Christ. We may face trials and difficulties, but when we evaluate that life against what Christ is doing in us, it was William Carey, the great missionary, who went to India, began to translate the Bible into Bengali, into the language of the people. And when you read that man's life, that man was used greatly by God, but the beginning was slow. Not many converts. He began to translate the word of God into Bengali. And as the ministry kind of gained momentum, people from England began to send him some equipment, some printing press type stuff, and began to help him. And he had written books. He'd written dictionaries, if you will, for the Bengali people in their language to learn the Bible and learn what the words mean and some commentaries. His life's work. One afternoon he's on a day trip and when he comes back there had been a tragic fire. And that building and all of his work had burned to the ground. And what amazes me when you read the stories the people who was with Carrie when he saw it. They said he didn't overreact. They said he didn't break into tears and didn't start screaming. He just got on his knees and he looked up to heaven and he thanked God for the mind and the strength to do it all over again. Sometimes that's what will move you. It's just getting down on your knees and having the strength to look up to heaven and say, if you'll give me the strength, I'll do it all over again. And the one who promised is always faithful. The one who said he'd never leave you, never forsake you, is always there. The one who promised that he's going to keep on working on you until the day he brings you before his Father and presents you to him, he's still there. You need to evaluate today. Whatever you're going through in this life, just start evaluating it to the faithful of Jesus in your life, the faithfulness of God in your life, and move from a trial to a trial. If we value comfort more than character, trials are going to get the best of us. 
if we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we won't be able to count it all joy. If we live only for this present, I mean, think about it. With this whole world, some of you in this room have lived a long time respectfully. And the, and the deterioration of this old world and everything that we see, if we fall into getting depressed and filled with anxiety about what's going on around us, then we fall into this idea that this is the best God could ever do. This, is, this, this isn't the best God can do. He did it, and man ruined it, but he's going to make it new again, and he's going to prove himself to be the one that restores all things. And if he's going to do that at the end of the age, he can do that in the heart and the mind of every child of God today. He can do it today. The second word James gives us is the word no, K-N-O-W, no. He says, first of all, brethren, count it all joy. Then he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. What do we know? What is it that we're supposed to know? Because sometimes I think we're guilty of forgetting what we should be remembering and remembering what we ought to be forgetting. What is it that a believer knows? A believer should know that faith is always tested. That when you come to faith in Jesus, and I think sometimes we've, we've not, as church leaders, we've not done a good enough job of helping people who come to faith in Jesus and an altar somewhere, help them understand that the fire's going to get turned up a little bit on you because there's some stuff in you God wants to get out of you. And don't be afraid of the fire, and don't be afraid of the pressure, and don't be afraid of the stress because that's where God does his greatest work in you. And then as we get older and we experience God, and let's just be truthful, as we begin to get relaxed a little bit in our relationship and, and we get a, a little bit relaxed in our pursuit of God, we should never do that. I'm not making light of that. But the truth is we all just kind of slide in if we're not careful to a moment where we're just kind of getting comfortable with everything. And if we do that, we're going to forget that God always tests our faith. And he tests our faith to bring out the best in us. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst, but God tests to bring out the best. When God wanted to bless Abraham and make Abraham a blessing, what did he do? He tested his faith. And he proved his faith. Here's the other thing that we know, is that the testing always works for us and not against us. Listen, God doesn't just add to our life. God, God doesn't do addition. God only does multiplication. God goes above and beyond. Are you with me this morning? Am I preaching too loud? God doesn't do addition. God does multiplication. If you're waiting on God to just add something to you, you're asking too little. You need to ask God to multiply. God wants faith. That's faith. Addition really isn't about faith. Multiplication's about faith. Because that'll move you from where you can't see it happening. You can't figure it out. And that's exactly where God is wanting you to get. He's wanting you to get to a place where you say, you know what? I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know how we're going to get through. I don't know how I'm going to survive this. But I do know this. I know God is with me and God is for me. And God says, that's exactly what I've been waiting on. I've been waiting on you to get right there so I can reveal my strength and power in your life. Testing works for us and not against us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that trial of your faith, Peter writes, being of much more precious than gold that perishes. You know, when you, when you know something and, you, and, and you've evaluated and now you have this understanding mind that, our, that, that God is doing something in this. I'm not going to quit on it. I'm not going to give up on it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to cry myself to sleep if I have to. 
I'm going to go without food if I have to. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. But I'm going to do something to get my mind where it knows what it knows about what God said. What is it that God said? And when's the last time you heard God say something to you? I mean, you know for sure God said something to you. If you can't go back to that moment, maybe that's why trials are getting the best of you. Faith is always tested. And the testing always comes to make you better and multiply in you. It's kind of like um, the word testing that he uses here is a word that you could, you could actually interchange the word approval. It's an approval. The testing of your faith, God is, is approving your faith. And, and now listen to me. God doesn't need to prove it to himself because he knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts from afar. He knows your words before they're formed. He knows you from the beginning to the end. God, you don't have to prove one thing to God today. Isn't that relaxing? You know who he's proving it to? Yourself. The word approval there, the, the best illustration I could give you is if uh, we went out in your backyard and I was there to help you so I get the tithe money. There you are. And we dug up in your backyard. Kenny, we went over to your house and we dug up in your backyard better than your son Kenny and I. Well, it was more Kenny than me shooting windows out of a neighbor's house. We had to replace those a few years ago. I don't know what the statutes of limitations are, but I think we're okay. We dug in your backyard and we dug up some gold. We found a little nugget. We said, oh, that looks like it's worth something. And we took it to an assayer's office. We'd turn in that little, that little chunk and that assayer would look it over and with an official approval would say, that's not just a little chunk that looks like it's worth something. That little chunk is a gold nugget and what it proves, it's an approval that what you have now is a gold mine. That little thing that was worth just a few dollars, once it gets an approval, is worth millions. Untold dollars. Let me tell you what your faith is. What's your faith worth? You may think you've got just a little bit. Aren't you thankful for scriptures that says even if you got a little bit, you can move a mountain? Even if you got a little bit, you can believe and trust and that God is able to do what he said he would do? Come on, I'm, gonna pre- I'm not up here playing this morning. I'm going to preach faith in this room today because God is saying to somebody in this room, I know your faith feels weak. I know your faith looks like it's real small. Maybe you even feel like your faith is even smaller than that of a mustard seed and God couldn't use it, but if you'll give it to him today, he'll put his approval on it and God will take that little bit of faith and he'll turn your situation around beginning with your own heart and your own mind. God will lift you out of your trial and give you a triumph today. Does anybody believe that in this room this morning? Come on, give him a mighty praise today. Give the Lord praise for his victory. God's approval of our faith is the most precious thing. Here's the other thing that we as Christians need to know about our faith. Is, and the testing of our faith is it helps us mature. Let me tell you why maturity is important. Well, first of all, it's important so you can keep a job. You need to grow up so you can keep a job. You need to grow up so you can have some relationships that last. Maturity, you know the problem today in the business world? Now, I'm not a businessman, but I try and read. Because, you know, pastor, I got I no money and land. and I'm just finding real smart people like you all have and let them do it. You know, the problem isn't finding people that have the skill set or the education. The problem is finding people who have the emotional intelligence to do the job. 
That means we need to grow up. Do you know what, God? You know when Jesus saved you, he expected you to grow up. Now, just relax. I'm going to be done in a few minutes. I'm going to go home, and you won't see me for a while. And I'm not here to beat you up either. Let me tell you why maturity as a believer is important. You ready? Because it's the key to every blessing God wants to bring into your life. Now, what we say is, no, 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 you got to have more faith. If you can have more faith, then that unlocks the blessings of God. Well, faith, true. Whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? I mean, I know all of that. I get that. I understand the, the part that faith plays, but faith can be up and down. Faith can be strengthened. It can, it can fall into a weak place. I'm not diminishing faith. But, but sometimes we can have faith, but we don't have the maturity to handle what God wants to bring. And if you don't have the maturity to handle what God wants to bring, he can't give it to you, just like your kids. We learn a lot about God from our kids and raising our kids. I mean, there are things that we want to give them, but if the maturity's not there, you'd be foolish to give it to them. You'd be foolish to hand it to them. You'd be foolish to do that. Why? Because they're not ready for it. And if we're not ready for it, then we're never going to be able to come into what God really has for us. In Hebrews chapter 6, 12, the, the writer of Hebrews says that we need to follow those from the Old Testament. And even those in the New Testament, we need to be followers of them who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Let me tell you, God wants to make us patient so that we can experience his blessings. And they're the key to every blessing that he wants to give. I mean, Abraham, God said, I'm going to bless you. Make your name great. Give you more descendants that are numerous than the saints of the sea. What did Abraham do? In his impatience, he ran ahead of God. Moses, I'm going I'm to use you to be a deliverer. What did he do? Moses ran ahead of God. And God said, speak to the rock. He struck the rock. Moses ran ahead of God in his impatience. Peter, Peter almost killed a man one night with a sword. Cut his ear off. In his impatience. I mean, at one moment, Jesus says to him, you receive the most divine human interaction with God because you've said, I'm the Son of God. I'm the, I'm the Messiah, the one come from God. And the very next sentence, he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. In his impatience. Listen, patience, endurance. And when I say patience, it's not like, well, I guess I'll just kind of sit around here and wait on this to happen. That's not patience. That's called quitting. That's called sitting down. That's called, that's, that's called, faith is a verb. Faith requires action. And when you don't know what to do, just do the next right thing. Just do the next thing that you know will bring glory and honor to God. When you hit a wall and you don't know where to go or what to do or what to say, just do the next right thing that will honor God. And God will move in that situation. No, patience here isn't the ability to kind of sit around and say, well, I guess I'm going to wait on it. Patience there is a word that means endurance. And if you're talking about endurance, it means you're carrying something. It means you've got your shoulder down and you're working through something. You're not sitting down, you're pushing through. You're not waiting on something in kind of, kind of blind, acquiescing to just kind of rest on your Lord. No, when you're patiently enduring, you're actually pushing up under something. You're actually saying, I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep going forward. And it's in that endurance that God does his great work in us. you got to know. You know, there's no substitute for an understanding mind. 
Because Satan can defeat an ignorant believer. And by that, I, I'm not using that word in a derogatory way. It's the true essence of the word. We just don't know. You just don't know. Satan can defeat a child of God who doesn't know. But a Christian who understands the word of God and leans on it will never be defeated. The third word. i got to hurry. I didn't even start my timer. The third word is let. you got to count. You have to know and you have to let. It's about a surrendered will. But let patience have its perfect work. That endurance. Push through. Keep going. Have its perfect work in you. That you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Now here's why that's important. Because God can't build you without your, your letting him do it. God can't work in your life without you submitting yourself to his will and his plan. And if we submit to him, then he can accomplish his work in us. And he is not satisfied with a halfway job. God wants to do a perfect work in us because God doesn't do anything halfway. And God wants to work a perfect work in us and he wants a finished product in us. He wants to know that you and I are standing up under whatever it is and we're, we're pushing through by the power he gives us and the ability that he gives us because we know down in our knower that God is with us and for us and, and we have an understanding mind and we're looking at everything in relation and we're counting it in relation to what God is doing in us and what he's promised to do in us and now all of a sudden we say, Lord, whatever you choose, whatever you want to do, I'll let you do what you want to do because what you want to do is so much better than what I had planned. God's goal for our lives is that maturity I just talked about. It would be tragic if our children just stayed little forever. We want them to grow up and experience what life has and experience the goodness of God. God wants to work in us. and We need to realize that again afresh and anew. God, listen, God spent 25 years working in the life of Abraham before he could give him the promise of the son. 25 years. God worked 13 years in Joseph's life, putting him through a variety of tests. God didn't design all of that, but God worked in the midst of it. Before he could put him in, on the throne of Egypt, God worked 13 years in his life. He spent 80 years in the life of Moses, working on Moses to give him 40 years of leadership. God can't work on you without your consent. God can't work in your life. God can't touch your mind. He can't touch your heart. He can't touch. It's not that he can't. He realizes that he won't be able to until you consent to him. And maybe, maybe one of the best blessings is that you hit a trial and you don't know what you know anymore and you don't know what to do anymore and you don't know where to go anymore and you run square into all of your weakness and all of your inability and all of your insecurity and you fall on your face and say, oh God, I need you. And then he moves in with that consent and God begins to work a work in your life. Listen to me. I'm just going to preach it the way I feel it this morning. You need to remember this. The longest day you're alive, you need to remember 
remember this, that Jesus, the one who bled and died for you, the one who would rather die for you than live without you, will one day present you to the Father. Do you, rem- you remember that, right? The Bible says that, that one day when this whole life is done and we stand before the Lord in a glorified body with glorified eyeballs and we're able to take in all of the glory of God in heaven, there's going to come a day when I will stand, and you will too, and I'll look my Savior square in the face, and he'll say to me, are you ready? And I'll say, yes, I am. He's going to take me by the hand. He's going to walk me right into the very throne room of God, and he himself will introduce me to the Father. And in that moment, I will stand there perfect in him. In his righteousness, I'll be dressed, and in him alone will I be satisfied and fulfilled and made perfect. That day is coming, no matter what happens in this life. But he won't work without your consent. He won't work. Until you let something get a hold of you. That says, I'm, I'm done with this. Pray that you may interpret. You have to give him consent to work. You have to ask him. Not because he's egocentric. He wants you to appeal to him. To work in your life. A work that will totally transform you. Because if we don't do that, we'll find a building like this, a church like this, that has wonderful things and wonderful people in it. And we'll get content to just come in and slip in a seat, sing a few songs, pray a few prayers, do whatever the preacher tells us, and then we'll leave. And I'm just here to tell you this morning. It's not an indictment. I don't know. I feel like a fish out of water this morning. Because I'm a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor. There's just got to be more. And the more we're looking for isn't more seats or better facilities. I thank God for it. We're renovating ours. I thank God for it. This is beautiful. And the house of God ought to be the best. There's more. And the more you're looking for is Jesus. I got to finish. Number four, you have to ask. You have to ask. So you got to count. That's a joyful attitude. You have to know. That's That's an understanding mind. You have to let. That's a surrendered will. And number four, you just have to ask. It's a believing heart. If any of you says there in verse five, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him, verse 6 for you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave driven by the sea and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded in all of his ways. Asking is about praying. Asking is about saying to God, this is where I am. He knows where you are. But do you know where you are? He knows exactly what state you're in, but do you know? Do you have the self-awareness to know that this is where I am? I'm depleted. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm broken. Ask. And when we're going through these difficulties in life, we should pray. And what should we pray for? Well, he says, ask for wisdom. Now, I, I don't... I don't pretend to know the full definition of wisdom. I, I just, I will just tell you that I don't think wisdom is knowing everything. Have you ever met anybody like that? They know everything. Some of the most frustrating people you'll ever deal with. They've been everywhere, done everything, and know everything there is to know about everything. That's not wisdom. That's called pride. Avoid those people. Wisdom isn't knowing everything. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. Somebody said knowledge is the ability to take something apart. And wisdom is the ability to put it back together. And let me tell you, you and I know how to take things apart. We can dismantle a good thing pretty quick. I have in my life before. And what I need is the wisdom to put it back. And the only wisdom that can bring it back together is the wisdom from God. It's the wisdom that God brings. It's the wisdom that God has for us. Ask for wisdom, he says. And why do we need, why do we need wisdom? We need, we need wisdom to know that when we're going through this trial, why is the wisdom important? The wisdom is important so we won't mess up what God's doing. God is working in our trial and the first thing we want to do is get out of it. The first thing we want to do is find relief. The first thing we want to do is say, no, 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 don't break it, don't break it. And, and then we fall into pragmatism. If it isn't broken, don't fix it. But what happens if God's the one that broke it? And God isn't wanting it to be fixed like it was. God is wanting to do something in us. And the reason we need wisdom in our trial, notice what he says. He doesn't say when you're in a trial, pray for strength. He doesn't say when you're, in a, when you're in a trial, pray for this, that, or the other. He doesn't say that. He says when you're in a trial, pray for wisdom. Pray for the ability to not mess with what God is doing so that the one who has all wisdom can help you put back together what seems to be broken. And when God puts it back together, it will never be the same. Think about it for a moment. He doesn't say pray for strength. He doesn't say pray for grace. He doesn't say pray for deliverance. He says pray for wisdom so that you can understand what God is doing and that God hasn't abandoned you in this. And I'll just tell you this. God isn't causative. He doesn't look at us and say, I'll tell you what, you messed up one too many times on Tuesday afternoon and I'm going to get you right now. If that is your idea of God, your idea of God is my idea of the devil. God isn't causative, and he's not passive. You know, well, I was watching Pastor Jones over in Israel, so I didn't see it coming your way. 
God isn't causative and he's not passive. Then what is God? God is redemptive. He's not causative and he's not passive, but he is redemptive. So when you hit the trial of your life and you call on him, God can move into the darkest night of the soul and can work a work and bring out of that darkness a light that the world needs. Charles... um, Charles Spurgeon is the one who said that God digs his building, his building clay from the, his molding clay from under the bridge. God will take a wreck and make it a masterpiece. God will take a tragedy and turn it into something beautiful that will touch a community and reach a harvest. He's not causative and he's not passive. He's redemptive. We need to ask in faith. Faith believing. Not doubting in our heart. But faith believing that God can do exactly what he said he would do. That God can move precisely in a way that he said that he would be able to move. Find a note. That God will be able to do exactly what God has promised and not one Tear, not one prayer, will be left unanswered and unnoticed. He says that if we pray and don't believe in faith and we don't ask for wisdom and we don't do it in faith, we're like a double-minded man. We're unstable in all of our ways. That it, it's, we, got, we got one foot in our situation, we got one foot in faith, and we're just trying to balance the two. The, the best example I can give you is Peter walking on the water. Lord, if that's you, let me come. It must have been one more storm. These guys were seasoned fishermen. This was not the first storm they had encountered on on Galilee. But they were terrified. Terrified. Thought they were going to die. This must have been one severe storm. Lord, if it's you, come on. Come on, Peter. Got out of the boat and he began to walk on water. Until a wave hit his leg or the wind blew the water in his face and he looked away in that moment of looking away his faith went in trusting in what Jesus could do to worried about what the elements could do and in that moment he began to sink don't be double minded and faith nowhere in the Bible does it say that you got to have the kind of faith that looks at the reality and says it's not true it's not true it's not true it's not true that's a mind trip that's not faith faith sees clearly faith looks a cancer diagnosis in the eye and says I see you but I believe God's report faith can look death in the eye and say my heart is broken into a million pieces and I don't understand I don't get it. I don't think it's fair. I don't understand. But faith can look death in the eye and say, but there's a day coming when we'll stand before the Lord and he'll make all things new and he'll make everything right. There isn't one thing this world can take from you. There isn't one thing the devil can do to you to rob you of what God has prepared for those who love him. Not the half has been told, nor has it entered into the heart and the mind of the things that God has prepared for them that love him and are the called according to his purpose. You have to count. You have to know. You have to let. And you have to ask. And when you do, God will move you from your trial into a triumph. 
Andrew Murray gave this quote. And I'll read it to you. It's, it's from his book, Though the Mountains Shake. Andrew writes this. First, he brought me here. And if he brought me here, it's by his will that I'm in this straight place. And in that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love. And give me grace to behave as his child. Then, he will make the trial a blessing. Teach me the lessons he intends me to learn. And working in me the grace he means to bestow. Last, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, only he knows. So let me say, I'm here by God's appointment. In his keeping. Under his training. For his time. God can move you from a trial to a trial. Will you come play softly? Will you stand with me today? If you're in this room today, and you would say with me, Pastor Chad, I'm in a trial. I'm just in a trial. I want, I want, I want everything God wants for me today. I'm in the trial of my life. Maybe you're in this room today, and you would just say, Pastor, I just believe that God has touched my heart today and I want to come to faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Whatever it is, whatever trial you're in today, I want you to do this with me. I want you to trust me. We're not going to, we're not going to take long this morning, but I want you to step out from where you are and I want you to make your way to this altar. Come on, don't wait. The king's business takes haste. Come on. Come on, I want you to come. I'm in a trial. I'm in a trial. I'm in a difficulty. I just want you to come. Don't be worried. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. I'm in a trial. Just come on. Come on. They're coming. Others are coming. Others are coming. Come on. I'm in a trial. It's all right. Take your time. Come on. Come on. Trial. I don't know how you normally do it. Pastor just told me to take my liberty and do that. So I would just say if you have a prayer team or staff and your spouse's counsel, Church leaders, would you would you just step out with these and come stand behind them to pray for them? Come on. It's your ministry. It's your ministry this morning. Oh, I wish I could communicate to you the freedom he wants to bring to you. Mm, Jesus, have your way, God. 